in our modern generation, nobody likes silence because mm. if you have silence, you find out what you like inside. Wow. And you don't want to find out what you like. So you cover it up with music. Mm. And you will often cover it up with worship music and think that that is doing you a favor. Yeah. But actually, it's robbing your ability to find out that your soul is not in a good place. And if you don't find that out, you'll never find God. This is the Sparrows and Wildflowers podcast. Stories of faith, love, life, loss and eternity. This is the Sparrows and Wildflowers podcast, episode number 45. Thanks so much for tuning in. We have the privilege of hearing from the amazing Robert Ferguson in this episode. Robert's been a huge inspiration in my life, and if you know of him, he's probably been a huge inspiration to you too. Robert is teaching pastor at Hillsong Church. He's also an author, appears on television, and is a husband, father, and grandfather. Robert shares a lot about his personal journey in this episode. So we hear about how he grew up, how he met Jesus, how he and Amanda got together, and we hear a lot of wisdom that he's learned in his own story. Before we get into it, though, I'd like to say sorry that this podcast was unavailable for a short time and has been a little bit sparse this year. I changed around the hosting of the podcast, which means it's actually now available on a whole lot more platforms, including Spotify and Google Play, and it will continue to be available consistently from here. I'm also going to attempt to do these a little bit more regularly. So if there's any particular people you'd like to hear from or topics you'd like to hear addressed, please let me know because I'd love to make that happen. And now I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed making it. Here's my conversation with Robert Ferguson. Well, I was brought up in the South of England in a very, very small village, maybe two, three hundred people. Okay. So a really small village that's been around for over a thousand years in a farming community. So my parents were farmers, brought up on a reasonable size farm for England, at least, not in Australian terms, but a reasonable size farm. So a very happy, blessed or privileged upbringing in the sense that I had a really beautiful house, beautiful garden, beautiful farm, great family. Mm. So in retrospect, it was a fairly idyllic childhood. Did you feel that at the time? I'm not sure that you ever really grasp what your childhood is like. I've I've talked to people who've been brought up in very broken circumstances Mm. and people are asked, well, did you see that? And they said, well, that's all we knew. So I had no idea that my life was blessed or Mm. privileged. I just assumed everybody lived like that. But you, as you grow older, you realize, wow, I had opportunities that other people didn't have. Mm. Growing up on a farm is the is the most extraordinary thing to do because you've basically got a a thousand acre backyard. Yeah. And in those days, there were no helicopter parents. You were allowed to do whatever. (laughs) 
and I would often disappear in the morning and come back later in the afternoon having had the best time building things, making things. It was just a great, great childhood. What are some of your memories? What did you go off and do? We had a, we had a lot of uh, fruit in the, in the garden. I had about a five acre, we had a five acre garden and it was filled with unimaginable types of fruit of every conceivable type. And so it attracted wasps. Oh. So there were wasps. In the summertime, there were wasps everywhere. Every time you sat down for a meal, there were wasps on your bread and jam, wasps on the table. (laughs) So my uh, parents would say, could you get rid of the wasps? So we would just have the best fun hunting down wasps' nests and destroying them. Oh, my God. And, of course, you know, in retrospect, I could have been terribly stung. Yeah. Things could have gone wrong. But we just... We did things like that all the time. It was just, you know, that's what you did. That's fun. It was fun. And you said, you know, it was blessed. Was there, what was the kind of spiritual environment? Was it religious? Um, My parents were churchgoers. So just at the end of the backyard, there was a church, an Anglican church. And my parents were regular attenders. I wouldn't say that religion was high on the priority list Mm -hmm. but there was no doubt that they believed in God and I was encouraged to do the same Mm. my my feeling about God was that God was there but not really practically involved in my life Mm. apart from church requirements which was a fairly limited season on Sunday yeah I think possibly my father was more committed. He was actively involved in the church work. He was a church warden and he would be involved in the services. So I think it was important to him, but uh, I never really fully understood because he died when I was eight. Oh, really? So that threw my whole world into chaos. I bet. And may I ask what happened to him? Uh, He got cancer when I was about six Mm -hmm. and then he died when I was eight. And in in keeping with a sort of privileged background, I was sent to a boarding school. Mm. Um, so this was what they considered to be the best thing for me. In England, people who go uh, sent to boarding school at great expense, I may say, have fantastic opportunities. Yeah. But there are huge downsides of which I, uh, one was that I was at boarding school from the age of seven through to 18. And so when my father died, when I was eight, I wasn't at home, wasn't allowed to go home. Really? Uh, didn't even go to the funeral. I had no idea for years where he'd been buried. That was what was expected of us in that sort of environment. Mm-hmm. We had to just toughen up and deal with the challenges. But sadly, I had to deal with them on my own. So Mm. I genuinely didn't really get over that for years. Yeah. What did it do to your view of the world and your view of God? I wasn't a a believer. Well, I was a believer in God, but I wasn't a Christian. I wasn't a committed Christian. I used to go to church because it was required of us at home and at school. So, as I said, I felt God was there, but not actively involved in my life. So I don't think my father's death 
to be honest, made any difference to my feeling about God. God was there, but not involved. Okay. However, later in life, when I gave my life to Jesus and became a Christian at university, then I really began to realize what a lack of fatherhood had done because I couldn't grasp that God was a father. Mm. It was an impossible concept for me. I'd never experienced one, so I didn't know what, how to approach one. So I used to pray when I was a, a new Christian at university. I used to pray Lord, Master, King, Jesus, anything, but never Father. So the pathway to discovering that God was my Father was actually a, a transformative journey. Yeah, wow. So that happened for you at uni. What brought you to uni? What did you want to do? I did, as I said, um, typical sort of private school uh, schooling from the age of seven through to 18. I wasn't good at school. It wasn't something that I liked doing. I was incredibly shy. I think possibly because of my lack of father, I was very reserved. Mm. I didn't have, I didn't respond well to large crowds, assumed if I walked into a, a group of people that they would all dislike me and reject me, which is the general feeling I had. Had that been your experience? I think it's what you feel when you lose a parent, to be honest. I think you feel unloved, even though I didn't specifically outwardly blame him. Mm. I think when you're eight and you lose your father, you do blame them. Yeah. I was angry. Anyway, so what that meant was that I spent a lot of time on my own and a lot of time on the family farm. And so my outlet was was animals. I was passionate about animals. I don't know if you've seen, Gerald, the uh, Corfu trilogy, the story of the Durrells, no. my family and other animals, but it's a, it's a well-known serial that's on, a series that's on television at the moment. And um, it's about a little boy and his family who live in Corfu, and he has a passion for animals. Well, I was like that. I, so my, my bedroom was filled with animals. I'd collect wild animals, uh, damaged animals in, on the farm or in the garden and look after them, no. let them freeze. So I'd often, my room was filled with mice and birds and Running free, or <laughs> uh, usually in my bedroom, uh, they were usually <laughs> they were usually caged. Okay, but over the you know, I'd look after anything. So mm. over the years, I've looked after an owl or a badger, or mm. and it, they became my pets. So animals, birds, wildlife became my passion. Yeah. So I assumed I would go into some sort of conservation work. So. I wasn't good enough at school, I thought, to go to university. So I had a year off after school and I worked with a, an animal behavior research group because that was my passion. But finally managed to get into university and studied zoology. So biology was going to be my, it was my only obsession and it was my great passion. So that's what I did. So I did a degree in zoology and then went on to train as a a biology teacher. Amazing. So that's my background. And in amongst that, where did this encounter with Christ happen for you? Uh, well, look, totally out of the blue. I went to university purely 
to study zoology. And by that time, I had stopped going to church. So up till about, I, I went to church because it was required of me, mm. up to the age of maybe 14, 15. After that, I thought, well, it's got nothing to do with me. God exists, but it's got nothing, he's got nothing to do with me. So I just abandoned that, took up some fairly heavy drinking, went to university, and a friend of mine, just my best friend, who I used to go out drinking with most nights, just came in one day and said, I've, I've just become a Christian. And it, I just, I didn't understand what it was to be a Christian. I assumed you were either a churchgoer or you weren't. I didn't, I didn't get the idea of what the Bible says uh, is a born again Christian. I didn't understand that at all. But what happened to him really took me by surprise. He, he went away for weekends to study the Bible. And I thought this was very odd. <laughs> and uh, I said, well, what do you do for a weekend? I, at the time, my weekends were filled with um, potholing. I was, a, I was a caver, so I spent most of my weekend underground. Oh, wow. And um, amidst a lot of drinking friends used to spend my my weekends getting drunk and, and crawling around underground. So th this idea of him going away for a weekend to study the Bible was like remarkable, but he persisted, persisted, persisted in saying, at least come to one of the meetings. Mm. So eventually, after a couple of months, I went to one of the meetings really to to argue with the, <laughs> with the speaker. Yeah. And this speaker remarkably used to went to my school now it was a very exclusive school so it was odd mm -hmm. that this man was went to my school and this is the thing that really struck me was that i thought that faith or christianity or going to church was for people who needed help in life yeah it wasn't for successful people it was for failures. <laughs> yeah. So he was a successful person. Mm. He was an Olympic athlete. He went to my school. He was wealthy. He was a, he was a educated man, yeah. successful. And yet he had given up all of that to become a curate in an Anglican church. And I, I was shocked. So at the end of the meeting, I went to him and I said, can you can you answer a few questions? So he came to my room with a few of my friends and he just sat on the floor till two in the morning and answered questions. And this is what really struck me as being odd. Every question I had, and they were, they were varied and plentiful, mm. he opened the Bible and he read the Bible to me. Now, I'd never heard anyone read the Bible like that or either believe it or really understand it or know it. It just took me by surprise. So it was the Bible that caught my attention. I thought, this is a remarkable book. Had you really read it? Ever? I'd read it. Um, I'd had to learn Bible stories mm -hmm. as a child and I'd flicked through it, but never read it from cover to cover. That night, at two o'clock in the morning, on the 14th of March, 1974, I prayed a prayer 
and it was a prayer that basically he encouraged me to pray but it was on my own I said God this man says you exist my friend says you exist I'm not sure that you do but if you do and you wrote that book and then I quoted him strangely enough the Bible as if he didn't know what it said <laughs> and I said um, look it says here that if I say sorry you will forgive me and if if I ask you you will give me a new life and I need a new life because I knew that I wasn't happy mm. but there had to be more to life than I was living getting drunk on weekends and really having very few friends feeling lonely feeling rejected anyway I prayed the prayer and absolutely nothing happened <laughs> Yeah. And I was I was disappointed, to be honest. Okay. I thought, well, that didn't work. Mm. So I went back to my friend uh, the next day and I said, um, it doesn't work. And I prayed the prayer. And he said, look, if God is true, he will, he will do what he says. Mm. So I prayed it again. But this time I thought, well, I'm just going to accept it. It's, it's done. I've become a Christian. But even then it would be an outward, it would be an outward thing. So I really, the next time I wasn't expecting any lightning or shaking floor. But then something really weird happened that completely took me by surprise. The next day I was, I was playing um, table football, foosball with, oh, yeah. with um, some friends. And they swore at me because I scored a goal. And I tried to swear back because I had filthy language. When, you, when you're young and weak, I was a classic seven stone weakling. I couldn't fight people, so I used words mm. to destroy people. Mm -hmm. I, even, I even learned as many vile words as I could in the dictionary in order to <laughs> destroy people. And um, I opened my mouth to swear, which I knew I could do, and I literally could not swear. Wow. And instead, I felt physically sick. Hmm. I thought I was going to vomit on the, on the table. And I fell backwards, thinking, what's happened? And I literally could not swear. Now, this may sound strange. That was... Um, March 1974, I cannot remember swearing from that moment to this. Oh, wow. So I knew, because I knew what I was like, I couldn't do that. Yeah. I realized that what had happened to me was an internal change. Mm -hmm. Something had happened on the inside that had changed me that I could not do. And I became completely fascinated. What had happened to me? Wow. And did life look pretty different? Well, look, people say um, when you become a Christian, the sky is bluer and the grass is greener. It's not quite like that, but I just, certain things happened that I just knew. So I knew God existed. Mm. I knew the Bible was true. And I realize now that it was a, not a natural experience. It was a spiritual mm. experience. Yeah. But 
I really wanted to learn. I was desperate to learn. So that was the Thursday morning, early Thursday morning. First thing I wanted to do was to go to church, which I hadn't done for years. Yeah. So I said to my friend who'd been pestering me, um, where do we go to church on Sunday? Mm. And um, he organized it. And (laughs) on Sunday, a car drew up and I jumped into the back and there was a couple of guys who were students and one woman and they said we're going to go and take a service we're we're all Christians and we're going to take a service in a small Methodist church do you want to come with us so I said sure and the lady who was there was also a student but not in my hall of residence she was going to sing that day and um she sang this beautiful song and I sat there listening to her and she's now my wife. Oh, I was going to ask you about this. So she was yeah. the first, literally, the first Christian woman I ever met. Oh. And cool. I had no idea, obviously. She became my best friend mm. for a number of years. Um, okay. And then we got married at the end of university. Wow. And I think anybody who knows you guys really admires you and your relationship. What was it that made you guys get together? I think it was, um, oh, can I just say one other thing that happened in that first service? Yeah. Because we were all taking the service, someone assumed that I was involved in preaching or, or singing or something. And they asked me to, to be involved. So this was in the Methodist church. And I said something that took me completely by surprise and took everyone else by surprise because I'd never really understood about being born again. Mm. But I said, I can't be involved because I'm only three days old. Oh, wow. And I didn't understand any of that concept. It was like, where did that come from? Yeah. But all my friends, including my... my, uh, uh, girl, well, the one who would become my wife, realized immediately that something had happened to me. Yeah. And they knew instantly that I'd become a Christian. So anyway, we then went to church together. Uh, we just became really good friends and I hung out. Everybody thought, to be honest, we were brother and sister. Mm-hmm. I often say to people, you know, marry your best friend because you like hanging out. So why not build that relationship on a, on a great friendship? Mm-hmm. which is what we did. But I was still, um, I had to learn about relationships. As I said, it's still very shy, still very rejected, didn't understand the basics of security. So I wasn't very uh, good at uh, girlfriend, boyfriend things. Mm-hmm. And um, finally, one of her best friends got fed up <laughs> and wrote, um, wrote me a long letter Oh, really? And told me to stop messing around and go out with my wife, Amanda. Now my wife, Amanda, go out with my girlfriend. And um, she pinned it to the my room in my university and said, basically said, go out with her. <laughs> and I still have the letter. Wow. And we're still in contact with that, with that lady. Aww. And um, so she gave, sent me the letter on the 29th of November, 1974. And the next night we went out, Amanda and I went out to a concert together, a Christian concert called Come Together. 
uh, strangely enough. And uh, I said, would you like to go out with me? Oh. And then, so she said yes. So the next day, that is the, the 1st of December, we decided since I was going to a Pentecostal church and she was going to an Anglican church, we would join the Pentecostal church and get baptized together. Although both of us were Anglicans, we'd been christened as children, we felt that we should um, get baptized in water as adults. Mm. So the literally the first day of us going out together, we joined a church and got baptized. Oh, that's amazing. And I went on then to become a minister in that church. So on that, you became a minister. You had been wanting to be in biology or zoology. Yeah. Like we talk about being called, you know, what did, how did that happen for you? Well, again, all of this, my conversion to Christ, my change of profession, all has taken me completely by surprise. This is not my plan. Mm. <laughs> it wasn't my plan at all. So I'm training to be um, a biologist and I'm sitting in a meeting in university and a preacher preaches a lady who's a missionary in Indonesia. I, I don't know her name. I don't even know what she spoke about. But all the way through her message, I had this inner compulsion that I had to abandon my biology mm. and become a missionary. Okay. And it shocked me. I didn't want to be a missionary. <laughs> I didn't want to be a preacher. I didn't like crowds. I didn't like people very much. I, I hated public speaking. I was terrified of public speaking mm. to the point that I would vomit if I felt that I had to speak. Yeah. So this was like a strange compulsion. And I assumed everybody in the audience felt like that. So I, I after the meeting, I went and said, doesn't that make you want to be a missionary, sort of jokingly? And they said no. <laughs> and I kept on going to people and they, and they, they kept on saying no. And I realized maybe this was me. Yeah. So I, I ran. There's a story in the Bible where Jonah, the prophet, is called by God to go and preach. And he said, no, I'm not going to do that. So he runs away. Well, I was like that. Mm. To the point that I, I remember going to a library, the science library, looking up. And I had my favorite corner of the science library where all my favorite books were. And I just, this is what it felt like. It felt as though God was chasing me mm. into the library. <laughs> and I was really annoyed. I, I <laughs> saying, leave me alone. I want to be a biologist. I don't want to be a preacher. Yeah. And I literally was trying to hide, just like Jonah tried to hide. You, you can't hide from God. So I, I tried to hide in my interest in biology. And then one day, I, I finished my degree, started training in, as a biologist, a, a biology teacher, and I was drawing a picture of a leaf on a blackboard to a group of 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds, and God spoke to me. Now, that may sound strange, but when you're a Christian, this inner compulsion is so strong, it's like a voice is the best way to describe it. It's, you know it's not you, especially since it's asking you to do things, <laughs> but it's not like weird or mental. It's, it's this inner conviction. Mm. 
that is almost impossible to explain to people who, who haven't experienced it. But nonetheless, so when I say God spoke, that's what it feels like. And God spoke to me and said, what are you doing here? Uh, exactly. I'm drawing a picture of a leaf. And I, it was so real, just as real as I'm speaking to you. And I answered just the same, almost out loud, because I'm at the front of a class. I said, I'm telling them about a leaf. <laughs> and this is what he said. You should be telling them about me. Wow. And it was so compelling, so memorable. I knew from that second I could never be a biologist. Mm. Now, nothing wrong with being a biologist if yeah. that's your calling, Yeah. if that's what you're meant to do. And I've got lots of friends who are biologists, mm. but it wasn't what I was meant to do. I genuinely believe that each of us has a calling, mm. a task, a divine task which we are responsible for and for which we will be held accountable. A specific? A specific task. You know, the Bible says we've got to take hold of that for which God took hold of us. Mm. So he took hold of me. Why? I have no idea. Pick me out of a small village. Don't know why. Broken, you know, broken life. I don't know why he picked me, except that he likes working with broken people and likes mending things and mm. likes making something out of nothing. Mm. And that's what I was. And so he said, I want you to be a preacher. Mm. So from that moment, I finished my, I finished my um, education qualifications, but then knew that I had to pursue being a minister. Mm. And that became, has become my lifelong mission. You're listening to the Sparrows and Wildflowers podcast, episode number 45 with Robert Ferguson. And now here's a short excerpt from the previous episode with dating coach Jessica Santosa. I really enjoyed the, living the life of a single woman who dated a lot and writing about it and also the community around me reaping the benefits of reading about that experience and them being blessed by it. And even my... My pastor at the time, she she was very supportive of my blog and would recommend it to other people. And, and I was like, okay, mm. well, maybe this can be a thing. And started giving dating advice to people in my church community and I became the local dating coach. <laughs> um, so, so that's how that started. If you could give kind of one or even a few little pieces of advice, what do you think is really <laughs> key that people maybe need to know that they don't? I think this is a perfect place to, to talk about the four archetypes of dating. So mm. um, we've, we've been developing this, you know, my team and I, about the, the dating archetypes. So there's four archetypes of women, these four dating super babes, I call them, um, that I've, I've realised in my work as a coach that, that the women that I coach tend to fall in these four categories. And at the same time, like, no, it's not the Bible, so if they don't feel they're they're one type, they, they can mesh with another, just like with any humanly conceived personality test or whatever. Yeah. But I really don't like giving generic dating advice and this mm. is why I talk about the four archetypes. That was an excerpt from episode number 44 with Jessica Santosa. And now back to this episode with Robert Ferguson. A couple of things um, that I'd love to flesh out a bit. You talk about a specific calling, but it not necessarily lining up 
with what you want and with your passion and also from what I observe of you there's a interesting tension of working hard and being diligent and, but also of that spiritual element of God just coming in and like literally changing you so that you can't swear for example yeah, yeah. like how do you balance I don't know if balance is the right word but how do those tensions kind of play out well, I think the life we live is, is, is paradoxical. There's lots mm. of tension and lots of paradoxes. And unless we learn to grasp tensions, we'll never fully understand what God has for us. For instance, Jesus is 100% human and 100% divine. Yes. So he's a 200% person. That's, that is a paradox that our brains can't cope with. Yeah. And I think he does the same with us. He expects us to work out our salvation. But at the same time, he works in us what we are working out. Or as Paul put it, I labor struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. Mm. So I fundamentally believe in, in I'm using his energy, but at the same time, I'm I'm really working hard. Yeah. So I think there's always going to be that tension. As regards the uh, not doing what you want, I think we've got this, especially in the postmodern generation, uh, the idea of being happy. Mm-hmm. And we've, we've mixed up this idea of being happy with a, a, a fulfilled life. A fulfilled life isn't always happy. Life isn't always happy. Yeah. But it can be genuinely fulfilled. And I think genuinely, genuine fulfillment is not striving to do what you want. Mm. It's striving to do what God wants. Mm. And to be honest, because we're human, we don't always do. We don't always want to do what God wants. Yeah. So Jesus, who is like sinless and completely submissive, prayed an interesting prayer at the end of his life. And he said, if it is possible as a human being... Could you take this cross or this cup away from me? Because I, I don't want what you've got for me. <laughs> yeah. I'm paraphrasing. But he says, but not my will, but yours be done. Yeah. He discovered true freedom and true fulfillment comes from complete submission. Mm. But this idea of not my will, I think is really important to understand because otherwise all you're doing is pursuing desires and wants and thinking that if you're happy somehow you're fulfilled i don't think i think life is much richer and more real than that Mm. um we've got to learn to submit and and i think we find incredible freedom and i also think that god is he wants us to boast in our weakness so that he Mm. can be seen for who he is Yes. So the fact that God has chosen me, who can't speak, to speak, is a much more potent story than someone choosing someone who can speak, who wants to speak, because it's all the all the credit goes to him. Mm. So I, I, you know, if you look at my school reports, they say this boy cannot express himself. Wow. My geography essay was published in the school magazine is the worst piece of writing in 100 years of the school <laughs> That's history. awful. It's dreadful. Uh, but nonetheless, a God said, he read the school reports thinking, excellent, I can do something here. 
So I get up onto the platform. Now I speak all over the world to millions of people and I write, I write for television, I write books yeah. and I can't take any of the credit for it because it is a, it is a God thing. Mm. And I think that's how all of us should live. But in my, in my human nature, there are still aspects of what I do that I don't want to do. Yes. And I was going to ask you about... Does, does that make sense? Oh, I, it does. Yeah. yeah. I wanted to ask you about staying humble because you and Amanda, for anyone that knows you or knows of you, you're very well loved. You're very well liked. You know, if it ever it's announced that you're speaking, everyone's cheering. Like, I was wondering, how do you stay genuinely humble and not let that get to you? Is it because you know what God has redeemed? Look, I think a, a real understanding of forgiveness is imperative. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people don't have a genuine understanding of how bad we are. <laughs> In, yeah. Left to our own devices, we're not nice people. No. So we're always told, you know, tell everybody they're wonderful. I, don't, I genuinely don't think that is the case. <laughs> I think we are, at our root, not very nice people. If we were, God wouldn't have had to send Christ to forgive us. Mm -hmm. We wouldn't need a savior if we're that good. Jesus wouldn't have had to die on the cross. Sure. The fact that he had to die on the cross and die for our sins suggests mm -hmm. that we are sinners. Yeah. So I think a, a, a constant reminder mm. of what we're like as people and that we are recipients of grace. Mm. We've been forgiven. So how can we boast? Having said that, the temptation is to forget. Yeah. And then I think what you've got to do is constantly remember. And Jesus, I think, understands our capacity to forget and set up communion. Mm. And he said, remember. All the way through the Bible, there's this, this tendency to forget. They, they were blessed and they forgot God and they did their own thing. Yeah. They got into trouble again, God forgave them, they remembered again, and they served God. Then they forgot, and so it goes on. This happens all the way through. So I think the key is to really, really have a, a rhythm of remembrance in your life. Mm. Whatever that looks like, a constant reminder that we are recipients of grace. Because then you're not going to get up and boast and say, look at me, aren't I brilliant? because you know you're not. You keep giving credit to God, you keep thanking God. The danger then is is um, you can feel too bad about yourself, Yeah. or if everything goes well, too good about yourself. And the Bible says, don't do that. It says, neither think too highly of yourself, mm. nor too lowly of yourself. So recognize who you are in God. So you're not going around feeling miserable, and saying, what a terrible person I am, nor are you going around saying, what an amazing person I am. So I think that's a good balance. Uh, I don't know if you've read Rudyard Kipling's uh, poem, If. No. Well, Rudyard Kipling was a Christian and he wrote lots of poetry. And one of his poems is called If. And basically is saying, if, if you can do this, if you can do this, if you can do this, you will mature, you will be a man, my son, is how it, it finishes. But um, one of the phrases is written over the archway 
as the tennis players come out of the changing rooms and go onto the center court of Wimbledon. Mm -hmm. So the phrase is, if you meet triumph or disaster, treat those twin imposters just the same. Wow. Which is a really powerful statement. In other words, you're going to get lots of critics you're going to have lots of failures and you're going to mess up all the time. Don't beat yourself up. Mm. We're bad anyway. God is gracious and can forgive us. Equally, if, as you say, I get onto the platform and everybody cheers and thank, thanks me, it goes straight over my head because it's an imposter. Mm. It doesn't affect me. So if I win in life, I give the glory to God. If I lose in life, I ask for forgiveness from God. It's it's like, it's all to do with your relationship with God. Mm. And you've got to remember where you stand. It's great. And then I put out on social media, actually, what would people like to hear you answer? And overwhelmingly, it was one thing people really wanted to know was, has anything genuinely shaken your faith? And if yes, how did you approach that? How did you deal with that? Wow. Um, Look, do you remember I said that when I became a Christian, swearing was taken out of me and I immediately knew the Bible was true. I realize now, I didn't then, that that was a gift. Yeah. And I think what God was doing was preparing me for my future, which I didn't know what it was, but he knew that I was going to be a speaker. So he removed bad words Mm. and he put in good words, Mm. but I didn't realize what he was doing. I just knew the Bible was true. And so I just assumed that happened to everybody, but I've discovered since most people go on a journey of discovering the Bible is true, Yeah, which is fine, except for me, it was like, an injection of faith. I immediately knew it. So has that been shaken? Never. I've just automatically known the Bible is true. And I think it's a remarkable gift. I don't, I, I thank God for it because I cannot remember a moment where I, from that moment where I didn't believe the Bible was true. Now, Have I lost faith in people? Yes. Have I been disappointed? Yes. Mm. Have I been (laughs) offended? Absolutely. Have I been fed up with the community? Yes. The church? Yes. (laughs) My life? Yes. So, um, you know, I, I I have felt like giving up on hundreds of occasions, Mm. but never because of God or Mm. because of his word. Mm. Those two have stayed absolutely pillars in my life. So occasionally I've felt like not going to church, but that's usually because someone said something unkind or... But what I've done when, when that has happened, it's gone straight back to the Bible again and remembered who I am and remembered that I've been forgiven. And since I've been forgiven, I've got to forgive them. So yeah. we're back to square one. Mm. So I think I've been given, as I say, grace to believe. Mm. And 
that has only grown over the years. It's not diminished. Mm. But look, to encourage people, don't panic if you haven't got that grace. Pursue the the Bible and you'll discover it to be true. Mm. And also don't give up when you get hurt. You will get hurt. Lots of bad things happen in our life and we've got to put up with it. So traumatic events have taken place. People close to me have died. People I've you know, wanted to uh, get over a disease, haven't. Mm. Lots of disappointments and tragedies and and difficulties. But that's that's life. My my discovery in it all is that God, uh, as one of the songs we sing, He's the same on the in the valleys as He is on the mountains. Yeah. The highlands in the highlands and the heartache, He's just the same. Yeah. Sounds beautiful. We don't have long left, but a couple of questions that arise for me from that is um, how do you genuinely wrestle with your faith and and work out your salvation and hear people's point of views without, I guess, questioning the fundamentals of who God is? And also, um, you know, you spoke about, you know, you can be offended by church, you can be hurt by people. It's interesting for me, you've been part of the same organization, the same church for decades. How do you, like, I mean, inevitably, I would assume things will arise that you don't always agree and you'll have a different conviction or you'll have a different interpretation of the Bible or way of doing things. How do you submit to leadership and follow vision and when your personal convictions differ, how do you deal with that and where do you draw a line? You've, you've asked about 20 questions. I have, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm trying to sneak them in. Um, <laughs> there's, a lot of, there's, a, there's a lot of facts there. Firstly, when you become a Christian, you assume that there are a thousand things that you must believe. Hmm. And you have to believe them all. But as you get older, you realize that there are actually a few <laughs> really, really important things that you must believe. And a lot of those other areas that were battlegrounds in your youth are no longer battlegrounds. Mm. So I have come to the conclusion that there's a lot of things now that I don't know, but certain things I know much more than I knew then. So there are certain things I will always fight for and other things now that I won't. So God is good. That's foundational. God will always do the right thing. He is just. It's not always fair. A lot of people think he's fair. He's not fair. Uh, That may be a strange thing, but the Bible says that people work one hour a day and they work 12 hours a day and he gives a day's wages to one hour Mm. people and a day's wages to the 12 hour people. Yes. That's not fair, Mm -hmm. but it's just because he's not doing anything wrong. He's just saying, if I want to give that person blessing, I'm going to choose to bless that person. Um, so he's just, but he's is not necessarily fair, and he's God. So those three foundational ideas are really, really important to grasp. He's God, therefore I don't understand him always. He will always be right, he'll always be God, and I've got to submit to him. He's just, he'll always do the right thing, and he's always foundationally good. Those things are absolutely paramount. So I go to church, I get offended, I get attacked, bad things happen, stuff goes wrong, 
I fail, someone disappoints me, someone leaves, God is still good, God is still God, God will always do the right thing. So those foundations absolutely keep you front and center. And then I have, uh, you know, a bit of a strange philosophy with people because basically life is very simple. You love God, as I've just said, and you love people. Well, how do you love people? Well, you, you have to love people with a sort of supernatural love. Jesus said he loved us even while we were still sinners. So I can love the unlovable. Mm. And I can genuinely do what I cannot do because Christianity is impossible. I have to do what I cannot do so I can love the unlovable. But one of the ways I love Christians, this may sound strange to you, but Christians are some of the most difficult, <laughs> um, is that let's say I'm talking about you and let's say you were being very unpleasant to me, mm -hmm. really, really unpleasant, offensive, rude. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I know. You wouldn't do this, but imagine. I, I have a rationale. If you're a Christian, Jesus lives in you, okay? And because of my attitude to Jesus, I know Jesus loves me. So the real Rachel loves me to bits. The God-centered, Christ-centered Rachel yeah. is amazingly loving toward me. Yeah. So the thing that is being angry to me, offensive to me, rude to me, is not the real Rachel. Hmm. It's your sinful nature. Yeah. And I'm not going to listen to your sinful nature. I choose to forgive it. Mm, that's good. So I actually will not be rejected by any Christian. Hmm. I assume they love me. And that changes everything because I walk into a room now where, remember, I used to walk into a room and believe that everybody hated me. Yeah. Now I walk into the room. I assume everybody loves me. Now, if they're Christians, they do love me, really. And if they're not Christians, even if they hate me, God loves me. Mm. So really, what does it matter? It's good. So can you see, you've got to have a few sort of um, tricks up your sleeve, mental tricks, yeah. to have what I call the gift of survival. Because mm. you're going you're gonna to have lots of criticism, brickbats, difficulties. You're going to have to just power through. Mm. The key, I, I've been actually doing a, a message recently on the gift of survival. And I talk about Job. Bad things happened, but at no point did he misjudge God. God made it very clear to him that uh, at the end of the book, he, he, God challenged his three comforters or his four comforters and said, you should get Job to pray for you because Job never said the wrong things about me. He didn't misjudge me. So that's critical. And then Job prayed for his three friends. Mm. So here's two simple devices. Never misjudge God. In other words, don't, when things go bad, don't say it's God's fault. Mm. Don't say he's a nasty God. Don't say God doesn't love you because that's not true. He's God. He's good. He's just. So I'm never going to say he doesn't love me. And second thing, if you start attacking me, I'll believe the best about you, but I'll also pray for you. Because mm. if I pray for you, my whole emphasis is not your attack on me. It's what God can help you with. In other words, I'm changing the focus. 
to I want you to be blessed. It's good. <laughs> so good. So does, I don't know if that makes sense. It but does. I was trying to give a, a shortish answer to a very long question. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you did well. Um, people also would love to know, I know you're a big reader, but do you have one book apart from the Bible that you would really recommend people? Look, I read so many books. I, my goal is to read at least a book a week. Mm. So, and often I'll read more than that. So to pick one book is almost impossible. But I can pick two books that have had a profound effect on me. Yeah. One was when I was a brand new Christian. I read the biography of James Hudson Taylor. It's an old book about a missionary who lived in China in the 19th century. His life was my my template Mm. and I read the book over and over and over again and it really impacted me so the biography of James Hudson Taylor by Howard Taylor and then in the last 10 years probably the book that's had the most impact on me is a book called Finding Sanctuary Mm. by Christopher Jameson he's a he's a monk in a in a Benedictine monastery and he writes about the rule of Benedict and he writes about seven uh, principles of a devotional life, including prayer and silence. Mm. One of the things he says is that silence is the pathway to the soul, and the soul is the pathway to God. In our modern generation, nobody likes silence because Mm. in order to, if you have silence you find out what you like inside and you don't want to find out what you like so you you cover it up with music Mm. and you will often cover it up with worship music and think that that is doing you a favor but actually it's robbing your ability to find out that your soul is not in a good place and if you don't find that out you'll never find god Well, it's good. So my challenge, a little challenge to your listeners is have at least some time in the day where you have absolute silence. There you go. Um, Favorite movie? Oh, look, that's impossible to um, ask. I'm a romantic tragic. Oh, really? So even when my wife's away, I'll listen to romantic movies. Oh. So um, I love Notting Hill Okay. as a romantic movie. The old school romantic movies like Sleepless in Seattle and all of those, I, I love. Oh, I think people will be surprised. <laughs> really? Oh, no, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a... Yeah, Amanda and I will often watch uh, romantic movies together. Uh, we like detective stories, uh, uh, especially English detective stories, but it's got to be... It's gotta be Real. It's got to be authentic. It's got to, the language has got to be normal. So I don't like fake, you know, these <clears throat> where you listen to the dialogue and you think nobody ever speaks like that. Yeah. Or you look at a policeman and think, no, I've never met a policeman looking like that. <laughs> yeah. So I like flawed heroes. Yeah. Because the Bible's filled with flawed heroes. It is. And uh, I think we are all potentially those people. Mm-hmm. So these sort of, fake um fake superheroes uh, don't do many i never i'm not interested in superheroes and then two last <laughs> questions kind of on that real heroes thing 
is that classic question of who would you invite to a dinner party, you know, living or dead, if you could invite anyone? Wow. Um, okay, so I would... How many people am I allowed? Oh, uh, let's say six guests. Six guests. M- men and women? Yes. So I would invite um, Nelson Mandela. Mm. I'd invite the Pope. The current Pope? The current Pope. Okay. I'm intrigued by him, mm-hmm. and I think he'd be a great uh, dinner companion. Mm-hmm. And I would invite Billy Graham. Wow, yeah. Did you meet him? No, sadly. Mm-hmm. So those are three people that I actually would have liked to have met. That's why I've chosen that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm trying to get an audience with the Pope. Don't know if it can work, but I'm, I'll give it a go. Yeah. Um, but obviously, I would have loved to have met Billy Graham and Nelson Mandela. So those three I would love to. Uh, in terms of obviously, I'd love to have met Mother Teresa, but I'm not sure she'd be a great dinner companion. <laughs> <laughs> she'd be always convicting me about uh, whether I should be eating this food or not. So I'm not sure she's the, uh, she's the um, best person the for dinner. The maybe list. <laughs> um, this may sound really strange, but one of the people that I would have at my dinner table is my mother. Mm. She was, she is one of my great heroes in life. So um, she would need to be there to add interest to the company. She she gave me the gift of curiosity, which I think is one of the great gifts that I have been given over the years. Yeah. One of, the, one of the things that I found intriguing is that uh, many, uh, his, I love reading history and many of the history books, because of the history of, of male-female roles, um, concentrate on men. Mm. And many of the great artists are men, many of the great preachers are men. Mm. And yet, many of them, when you read their stories, have got these remarkable wives or women in their lives who yeah. are incredibly strong, inspiring women. So I'm reading a, a book about Martin Luther at the moment and his wife sounds extraordinary. Mm. He, he rescued her. She was a nun, a nun by enforcement. Mm. She was sent away as an 11-year-old to the nunnery by her parents. And Martin Luther, having had a revelation about justification by faith, started releasing nuns and he would release them um, squirrel them out of the nunnery and then find them husbands this is one of the things (laughs) that he did early on in the piece I didn't know this and he couldn't he didn't find a um, he didn't find a husband for his wife and so he said who would you like to marry yeah and she said you (laughs) and he said you I can't marry I'm, I'm just about to be martyred for my faith oh. and I can't possibly be married. And she said, well, you're the person I want to marry. And they, they married on the basis that they were great friends mm. and they married because they thought it was the right thing to do. They weren't really in love. Mm. And yet they, it, was a, it was a beautiful love story in the end. They fell in love with each other and he realized that she was his best attribute. Wow. So someone like that... Mm. Uh, I think her name was Catherine von Bora before she mar- married. But someone like that would be fascinating yeah. to find out what it was like 
to live in the heart of the Reformation. Mm. Those those sort of people, I think, were would be fascinating to have round a dinner dinner mm. table. So good. All right, and last one. This is probably another impossible question, but is there a scripture that really is kind of your special one that you really love? Yeah, it's again an impossible question because I don't like. I always say to people, you shouldn't have favorite verses. But yeah. um, <laughs> my um, mission statement mm. is based on one verse, one Thessalonians four one, that says that we've got to teach people how to live in order to please God. Mm. So although that isn't my favorite scripture as such, yeah. it is it is the one that has impacted me the most because that's basically my mission statement in life. My job is to do nothing else but to teach people how to live in order to please God. Mm. So I'm primarily a teacher. My goal is God's pleasure and it has to be practical. Mm. So I can't, I can't, for instance, ever since God said to me in that calling, you should be talking about me, I can't do a motivational speech. No. Because it's just not my calling. I have to talk about him. So my goal is always to please him. And I've got this passion that life should be practical and people need to know what to do. So I think that's a, a reasonable mission statement and therefore a great scripture. 